First Peter chapter three, verse seven is our text for today. This one verse. I don't know if we've ever preached just one verse before. Have we? Yeah. One verse today. First Peter chapter three, verse seven. Let me move out of the way so you can see it. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we begin, let's pray that God would guide us by his word. Father. How can we be men unless you show us how to be men? How can we be husbands without seeing the great husband that Christ was to the church, that he is to the church? How can we love our wives and our church well if we don't first see how you have loved us well? Show us through your word. Give us your spirit. Illuminate our hearts that we may delight in Christ and share this honor that you have given us with as many as possible so that Christ would get the glory and honor that he deserves. Amen. Nathan Hale, maybe you've never heard of him. Nathan Hale was a 21-year-old man in September 1776 when he was arrested by the British Army, tried very quickly and hanged for treason. It's reported that his last words before he hanged were, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Hale was a brilliant young man. He graduated from Yale University as an 18-year-old. He immediately became a teacher displaying his leadership potential all over the region, which then led the American Revolutionary Army to recruit him into military leadership. At the beginning, very beginning of the Revolutionary War then, Hale noticed an absence of people willing to volunteer to go into enemy lines, behind enemy lines, and gather information for this budding revolution. And so he eagerly volunteered to General George Washington to go, knowing that it would very likely cost him his life. Hale's sacrifice brought valuable information back to the American cause, which spurred the cause of liberty and later would inspire others to join. But what was it that gave him such courage to want to lose his life? For his country. Why would he give up all that potential? Because he was inspired by a vision for what his people could have. He knew them intimately, his own people. He was so intimately familiar with the sufferings of his fellow countrymen, but he sought to honor them by giving them the life that he saw they deserved, even at the cost of his own life. This heart of sacrifice to bestow honor on others is what men were made for. But my own experience as a man, as a husband, even as a pastor has shown me that the state of masculinity, not just in our country, but even in the church, is in a really sad condition. 
We are in trouble. We are far from the Nathan Hale model. We men have no idea what it means to be and to follow leaders. Men today are addicted to virtual realities like pornography and video game wars. We look to our wives to make all the difficult decisions for our families. We men spend more time away from our wives than with them and are easily excited by sports, hunting, cars, fishing, guns, but we can't even get our own hearts aroused to delight in our wives. We seek the quick highs of addiction and distractions of career pursuits. Some men forget to actually leave their father and mother and cleave to their wives and too much involving their parents in their decisions. And in times of great need like we're in now, most men are willing to just sit back and wait for someone else to come along and lead us out of the darkness. What happened to us since 1776? Where are all the Nathan Hales among us? I think most of us feel this great responsibility, don't we? But we don't have clarity. We don't have good examples anymore of what it should look like. How do we execute our role? So Peter has some words of instruction. And despite the brevity, just one verse, there is enough here to teach us and keep us busy for the rest of our lives. It's rather simple, but extremely difficult. Peter's calling us men to lead with knowledge and honor. Just like Nathan Hale did, men lead with knowledge and honor. These are the two ideas that we're going to pull apart in a lot of detail today. First, looking at what it means to live with knowledge. Men need to understand where we are supposed to be going and whom we're supposed to be leading there. And then we see that the purpose of that leadership is to give those we lead honor. Give them honor. Leadership isn't about getting something for ourselves, but giving to those who are in our care. So as Rocky said a few weeks ago, when he preached on this passage to women in the previous verses, he said, don't check out if you're not married. Same for today. Even if you're not married, this all matters to every one of us. It matters to the purity of our corporate witness, to the health of all of our families, and to the success of the Great Commission. Peter's instruction tells us, tells those who are not yet married what they should be striving for. And he's telling the church what kind of men they ought to be looking for to lead us to our heavenly home. There's a lot to cover here, so let's pay close attention. We don't get too far into this instruction before we need to stop immediately and ask some questions. The very first word, likewise, should make you stop and ask, like what? Typically, they use this word likewise to indicate there's a repeating pattern that he's picking up on. And that's what we see. Peter started telling citizens to submit to their government and slaves, servants to submit to their masters, wives to submit to their husbands. And so this likewise is picking up on that pattern, telling certain people how to relate to others in different areas of life. But we need to be careful here because Peter is not telling husbands to submit to wives. That wouldn't make any sense. There's no such thing, as much as we love the phrase, as mutual submission. It's just meaningless. 
It means that someone has authority over another person. You wouldn't tell the general of the army that he needs to submit to some sergeant. So Peter must be saying something else. What is this likewise connecting to? The, the Greek verb construction just shows us behind the scenes a little bit that there's a main verb that's way up to the top of this whole section that carries through all of these subsections. And the main verb isn't submit, but honor. The last imperative given is from chapter 2, verse 17, saying, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. So this this broad call that extends to all situations, honor everyone, but it needs specific application. So the likewise is going back up, grabbing that phrase honor, saying, likewise, husbands, honor your wives. And showing honor looks different in different situations. If you're in a political government situation, submit to your government. If you're in an employment relationship, submit to your supervisors. If you're a wife, submit to your husband. And then when these circumstances all overlap, which one you obey, which one you submit to, depends on the authority, the role that God's given each of those. You can't obey all of them because sometimes they contradict, but that's a sermon for another day. But there, there's this interesting switch here when we get to verse 7. No longer are we talking about submission, but we're given new verbs to clarify this type of honor. Men need to live with understanding and give appropriate honor to their fellow heirs. This change of instruction is quite strategic for Peter and his entire message throughout this letter. Remember that Peter has been addressing the church, how they're supposed to face suffering and trial in this life from this world at the hands of wicked people. And he's given the church the identity of Israel coming out of Egypt on this great new exodus. God has prepared a promised land for us. And he's saying, I'm taking you there to dwell in this new place, in a new creation. Peter's encouragement to wives and to husbands is still based on that imagery. He wants us to see That our great battle in this world, in this journey, is not with the government, within politics or in the marketplaces of the world. We're not starting a political or market revolution, but quietly, like leaven spreading throughout a whole lump, we are building a counterculture. This new society will need a different kind of leader. Not presidents and kings and politicians or entrepreneurs and businessmen. Our counterculture is built in the home and in the church. Its leaders are going to be godly husbands, fathers, pastors. This is the way it was actually supposed to be from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, Eden, not Edom, that's a different place. The Garden of Eden... God gave the responsibility to protect and provide for the garden to Adam before Eve was even created. Adam was to guard it from enemies, keep them all out, and build the place up so that when Eve was created, she could come alongside of him under his wing of protection and bring life into that garden. Her name actually means life. But Adam quickly abdicated that responsibility. 
He didn't protect his wife from the temptation of Satan. He actually let Eve just kind of step forward and take the lead in defending the garden and seeking out the truth of what was good, the knowledge of what was good. And it destroyed them. And we see this pattern throughout the whole Old Testament where God is going to restart creation in some way with a man and his family leading the effort and multiplying. But then they fall. The man falls and the wife has to step forward and take leadership, assuming the role that was meant for him. So a key indicator at each step in this whole process, in this redemptive story, A key indicator of failure, of creation's brokenness, is that the family now is led by a woman. Eve took leadership. Sarah had to take leadership. Deborah, Jael, Naomi, Ruth, Esther, all fantastically godly women who had to do the hard work because the men in their lives who bore the responsibility either abused it or ran from it. Women had to take leadership. And this doesn't say anything about whether they should be in that role, but it's just an indictment on the men. Where are they? The bravery of this, of these women in place of the men is to tell us that creation is broken. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Praise God for these women because it's through their faithfulness to trust God when the men ran from God that His promises were still preserved. That's why Matthew is so eager in his Gospel to give women such places of prominence. Women throughout Jesus' genealogy. Mary put forward as almost the ideal woman who bore the life of the Messiah. And women were the first to witness the resurrection. Eternal life was born as promised to Eve through faithful women. But now we're a new creation people. That new leader, Jesus, took control, took life, and bought new life for us. He's starting a new exodus into a new world. And this time we have the guarantee that this world will not fall apart. The created order will be restored and successful. And so Peter starts us back at the beginning. It's time for men to take the lead to guide us back to the promised land. It's going to start in the home, and spread throughout the church family, this new creation people. This is why Paul is so adamant in 1 Timothy 3 when he's talking about qualifications for elders. The main place that you're going to see if a man is qualified to lead the new creation people called the church is if they manage their home well. This is how our counter-society will fill the earth through the home and the church family. So what does Peter say this leadership is going to look like? The first instruction he gives is to live with knowledge. Before we even tackle that word knowledge, though, we need to start at the first word and say something that should be rather obvious. To obey the command to live with your wife means you actually need to live with your wife. Right? Be present with her. Yes, men, go out, conquer the world, explore new lands, but return to your castle quite often and check on your family. Don't forget to build her up and protect her and provide for her. This isn't just a physical reality either that you share the same address. 
but you're also there emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. Your life is intertwined with hers. It seems rather obvious to say such a thing, but so many men, I think, today, for fear of believing that maybe emotions display weakness, they disengage emotionally from their home. I justify that by saying, well, at least I haven't left. I haven't divorced her yet, as though not divorcing and being distant is still better than leaving. But statistics reveal that being physically present and emotionally distant is actually just as bad, if not worse, for the family. So, men, be physically and emotionally and spiritually present in every way possible in your homes. Now, the next part of the phrase kind of draws out that idea a little bit more. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, it means according to knowledge. To It reinforces this previous idea that with knowledge doesn't mean just simply having some information, an intellectual set of data. Yes, I know my wife's birthday, her favorite color. Sometimes I forget our anniversary, but I got a, a good collection of knowledge. The word knowledge throughout the Bible actually suggests intimate relationship. So we see in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve, finally, after they're kicked out of the garden, they return to intimate knowledge of one another. And what comes of it? They conceive a son. Their relationship was so intermingled physically, spiritually, emotionally, that they put their bodies together as one flesh and out of it came a new life. Adam was to lead his wife with knowledge of both what God commanded and what his wife needed. This was the original design, and out of that comes flourishing life that would fill the earth under the leadership of godly men. And this intimate knowledge is of a husband and his wife is supposed to picture for us the relationship that we have with God. Jeremiah 31 promised a day where everyone in a new covenant would know the Lord. Again, it's not just having an intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe in God. He exists. He's in charge. But a relational intimacy with God. This is what Jesus accomplished for us in His life. He showed us what that relational intimacy with the Father looked like. And yet in His death, He took upon Himself that of a rebel, of a wayward child, the punishment that we deserve. But He rose from the dead to give us His Spirit to restore that intimate relationship with the Father. And then by His Spirit, now we men can display to the world what that love looks like by living with our wives according to intimate knowledge. But I really want to offer a warning here because this command can so easily be abused. And I know that because I used this verse all the time to justify abdicating my own responsibility. Think back to Adam's call to lead his wife. In Genesis 2, God gave Adam the instruction for caring for the garden, protecting his wife, knowing what trees were okay to eat from. Eve hadn't been created yet. So Adam's job was to take both the knowledge of what God said and the knowledge of what his wife needed, both of them together to lead his wife to create life. 
But Adam ignored one half of that equation and he listened to the voice of his wife. It says, instead of listening to God and correcting his wife, he only took cues from his wife. So Genesis 3.17 says, the curse on Adam came because he listened to the voice of his wife. Later in Genesis 16, Abraham found trouble with Hagar And it says specifically, because he listened to the voice of his wife. Now, obviously we need to stop here and say, you need to listen to your wives. That's not the point. We're not saying that wives, you remain silent and you have no right to ever speak. The idea is that these men didn't first listen to God and take the knowledge they have of what God told them And correct and inform and inspire their wives' misunderstandings and fears with God's truth. Unfortunately, this is how so many of us men live today. I'm still overcoming these tendencies. We're constantly fishing for knowledge of what other people want from us or what other people want us to be just to make sure everyone will still approve of us. Men are asking their wives where they want to go out to eat. This is the classic example. The man says, where do you want to go to eat? And she says, I don't care. You pick. And then he says, well, how about here? No, I don't want to go there. Well, why don't you just tell me where you want to eat? This It's comical, but it's indicative of this problem of not knowing our wives intimately and thrusting them to the forefront to make decisions. Understanding needs and desires of our followers, of our wives, is Very important, but it's only part of the equation. So I think there's kind of two ways that you can think about obtaining knowledge for leadership. One is in here, the people who are in my sphere of responsibility and out there, the world that we're going into, the world I need to protect them from. Nathan Hale modeled this balance very well, knowing intimately the sufferings of his own neighbors. But he also saw out there very clearly a joyful liberty that was there for the taking. So leadership becomes abusive when these things get out of balance and they're informed by the wrong voices. So an abusive leader is always looking out there, always pressing forward, dragging people behind him and running over people on the way. But there's an alternative that's equally as bad. A passive leader is always looking in, waiting for someone else to make the decision clear, trying to gather more information to try to mitigate all risk. But there is no getting rid of all risk. Only God knows every detail. A godly leader balances both of these inward and outward focuses and informs them by God's truth. By God's instruction, he considers a knowledge of what's out there, the threats that are out there and the direction and the better opportunities that are out there, examines them in light of what God says in his word and what where he calls us to lead. But he also looks to those who are in here, what their fears and their skills, what their misunderstandings, their weaknesses, their desires are. And he examines those in the light of Scripture and what God calls these people to become. He prays in dependence upon God saying, help me. And then he takes the step forward, trusting that God will guide the way, will honor his faithful efforts. 
But too often, man, we get this all wrong. We run without consulting God's Word, without praying. We inform who we think our wives ought to be through wrong voices like pornography or maybe looking at neighbors. Oh man, she's pretty great. I wish my wife were like that. Or even believing our own wives' fears and insecurities. Or some men speed forward, not even considering what their wives think or what they care or what they're feeling. Or how it might take some time to get there. We need to begin, to begin leading with a fuller knowledge of where we're going, of whom we're leading, and of what God calls us to do for both. We need to embrace risk as an opportunity to see God work as He lights our path. We must lead this exodus to the new creation with confidence informed by intimate knowledge of both God and His world and our wives. So with this confidence, now we can see how we ought to go forward and the next phrase tells us what we're aiming to accomplish in our role. Peter explains that godly men lead others in order to give them the honor. Remember back in chapter 2, we're called to honor everyone. And so far, all of the subsections have pointed the honor upwards to other people. But Peter's kind of given us a little hint here that honor goes every direction. Giving honor is simply a way of paying respect for a person, no matter what their role, wherever God has placed them. So I said before that mutual submission doesn't make sense, but there's something we like about it. I think a better phrase would be mutual honor. Everyone deserves honor for simply being an image bearer of our God. And wives have a special place of honor. And men, your responsibility is to make sure they receive as much of it as possible. Give the honor that is due to your wife. The word showing honor means to give the appropriate honor, the the correct honor that fits the role. And again, man, we get this out of balance. On the one hand, we forget that our responsibility is to take the honor that Jesus gives us and then pass it on to those who follow. And abusive leaders will just gather all the honor they can get for themselves. Or the opposite ditch again is that we heap inappropriate honor onto the women in our lives exalting them to a place that's not theirs to have. Some men put women on such a high pedestal that they are crushed under the expectations that are only meant for King Jesus or the responsibilities that are yours. We see, again, that's what Adam did as he pushed Eve to the forefront of the battle with Satan, expecting her to do the honorable thing that he was supposed to do. He should have honored her by protecting her, saying, get behind me, Satan, as Christ did, so she could be free to be fruitful in the garden. Giving appropriate honor to our wives means helping them flourish in the role that God has placed them. And that starts, obviously, with childbearing, but it means so much more. So, with childbearing, Eve, she was called the mother of all living because everyone alive came out of her womb. 
And Hebrew women's greatest hope was to fulfill the promise of God to Abraham that his family would become an innumerable nation. And that one of those women one day would give birth to the Messiah. There's this obscure command in Exodus 21 that says a husband at a minimum must provide three things to his wife. Food, clothes, and sexual intimacy. Seems rather strange. Those three things are what she needs to live. Not really to live, but to be honored. A man should strive to provide these things because, and all the tools necessary so that she, in her role, in her creativity, in her gifting, can take those three things, mix them together, work them up, and curate a beautiful menagerie of life in her home. And a courageous man does everything he can to provide these things, not just at a minimum, but in abundance. So he can promote flourishing through the skillful hands of his wife, whether the children she nurtures are physically or spiritually born. Being fruitful and multiplying means so much more than just making babies. It points to something greater, proclaiming the gospel to your neighbor and seeing people be born again into eternal life. And women have a very important role in nurturing both kinds of those lives. Men may be called to lead the home and the church, but women are absolutely vital to accomplishing this great commission of bringing eternal life to the world. Your responsibility as men is to honor the women in your life as they strive to fulfill that role. Interestingly, here the word for women that Peter uses is not the ordinary one he usually uses for wife or woman, but it's a little bit broader. It means the feminine. Honor the feminine. It's a subtle way of broadening the call to provide and protect the feminine honor whenever we have an opportunity. And I think of how many single women we have at our church that are far from their fathers and they're unmarried yet? Who are the men in their lives that are going to heap upon them this honor to help cultivate life in this world? That's our job, men of this church. But it first must start in the home. We have been fashioned specifically for this kind of work. And Peter reminds us of that in the next phrase, the weaker vessel. Don't be offended by this, ladies. It's not... A lesser value, but simply a physiological reality that men tend to be stronger, tend to be made for providing and protecting as women are made for nurturing and bearing. The genders were made with different tasks in mind. Men, outward focus, conquering, expanding, building. Women are more inward focused, softer, welcoming, comforting. And in a threatening world, this makes women a little bit more vulnerable. But the two genders fit together in all of our varying degrees, allow us to build in our homes and in the church this counterculture of both strength and comfort, structure and beauty, expanding and deepening, provision and pleasure, protection and nurture. We need each other. The world can't seem to balance these things, but we know how to do it because we embrace the image that God has designed us for. It's not good for us to be alone. 
Because it's our job together to show that all of these characteristics come from God Himself. Even if you aren't married, brothers and sisters, you need to be in relationship with godly men and women in your life, which I call the church, to help you fulfill your honorable role as a man and a woman. Both genders are valuable and important for displaying the full image of God. Being a weaker vessel doesn't mean being a vessel made for dishonorable purposes. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9 that everyone who is in Christ is a vessel for honorable use. That's true whether you're a man or a woman. And the man's honor is to take his honor and give it to the wife so she can bring life into the world. Peter explains this further in the following phrase, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Even though they're more vulnerable in this world, women are to receive the same heavenly inheritance as men. Women are co-heirs with us of salvation in Christ. In Christ, there's no slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. We are all one in Christ. So men, let us do everything we can to make sure that the women in our lives receive that eternal promised inheritance. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 5, that we present them in splendor to God, adorned with His honor. Good leaders don't honor the people who follow them by controlling them more, tightening the grip and telling them where they're allowed to go and what they're allowed to do. A good leader honors those in his care by inspiring them, freeing them, equipping them to become the honorable creatures they were made to be. So, let's do it, men, with unwavering determination. It's not just a great privilege. It actually evidences our salvation. That's what Peter says in this last phrase. So that your prayers may not be hindered. He's not saying that this is some kind of quid pro quo or agreement, arrangement with God, where the better leader you are, the more prayers you get answered. This is a statement really about the basics of salvation. You can't have claim to receive unmerited honor from Christ while turning around and not giving it to others. You can't say, ask God to listen to your needs while you're ignoring the needs of everybody else around you. Peter knows this well because he was taught it regularly. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Matthew 18, he told the parable of the unforgiving servant, that servant who had a massive, unpayable, lifelong debt, and his master forgave it. And yet he turned around and starts demanding justice on all of these little minor debts. And Jesus says to him, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Men, we need to remember that before we are leaders, we are servants of the Lord Jesus. We have had a great debt forgiven us, and we ought to lead our homes and our church with the same heart that Christ had toward us. The honor Christ has given you is to be shared with others. We are first servants of King Jesus. And His first command to us is to lead those in our care 
by thoughtfully bringing them the honor that is due to them. And we're only able to live this way because He first loved us this way. He emptied Himself of all His privilege in heaven and instead became one of us. He lived with us according to knowledge in an understanding way. Hebrews says that He became like us in every way, tempted like us. He was human. He was hungry. He was beaten down. He was tired. He has intimate knowledge of our need. And yet John 17 also says that He has intimate knowledge of God and the unity and the honor and the glory that are awaiting us. And so He came down to lead us to that place of honor. Jesus modeled manly leadership by showing us first submission to the Father and then becoming intimately knowledgeable with the people He came to serve by taking our sin upon Himself on the cross. And then He powerfully rose from the dead to say, follow Me to a place of great honor. Men, let us lead the way imitating Christ. And what better time to do it than right now in a world full of fear about sickness and death, a world full of confusion about who do we follow, who has what authority. Everyone's debating about whether all the government's actions right now are appropriate or helpful or wise. But there's no debate about what our King commands us to do. He tells us to submit to God in His Word. Know intimately the people that are in our care, where we are supposed to take them, and give our lives to bestow honor on them. Let us embrace this call, brothers. Not abdicate our responsibility, just leaving it up to someone else to save the day. But to lead our families and our church to our heavenly home. Let's embrace this challenge so that your life, at the end of your life, you can declare like Nathan Hale, my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my wife and church. Let's pray. God, build us up as a church to represent Your beautiful character, Your strength and Your beauty, Your tenderness and Your power. Help us do that together by men and women seeking to honor one another. And help us do it by the Spirit of Christ at work in us. By the example of Christ who went before us and showed perfect submission to the Father and also perfect leadership to His church. God, show us how to do that and lead us in the way that Redemption City Church could lead out of this darkness many, many souls into the glorious light, into a place of honor around Your throne. Amen.